This is the On The Touchline Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Broadwater. Welcome to the show. Want to save 10% on your next DukeTigBrand.com order? Use the promo code BROADWATER19 at checkout. D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com. If you've listened to the show before, you know how much I love DukeTig Brand. I use their Excel notebook, I use their waterproof notebook, and absolutely swear by their products. Go to duketigbrand.com right now, D-U-K-T-I-G-Brand.com, and save 10% at checkout on your next order. From apparel to logos to coaching notebooks, Duketig Brand has got you hooked up. Duketigbrand.com, promo code BROADWATER19 at checkout. In season two, episode 26 of the On the Touchline podcast, I talked to Gabe Bolton. Gabe is the head women's coach at California State University, Stanislaus, or more commonly known as Stanislaus State. Before I tell you about Gabe and his background, just a couple of show notes to update you on. So season two of this show will be wrapping up at the end of July. And we'll take a little bit of a break, but season three will be back in your feed before you know it. Um, Probably most likely right after Labor Day. That will give me and others associated with the show some time to recharge, but also get things in order for what we have planned in season three. And by then, you will have roughly 30 episodes or maybe a little more than 30 episodes of this podcast in season two. So bring our grand total to over 60 episodes of this show that you can go back and listen to at any time. And keep telling more and more people in the football and soccer community about the podcast. So if you listen to the show on Apple Podcast, go there right now, leave a five-star rating and a review for the show, and help more and more people in the soccer community and the football community find out about this podcast. That is how we continue to grow. So thank you for that. And uh, we're available on 12 different podcasting platforms. Of course, you can reach out to me at any time on social media, highly active on Twitter and Instagram. And you can find me at SoccerCoachJB. So let me tell you a little bit about Gabe Bolton. Gabriel Bolton, the most successful coach in Stanislaus State women's soccer history, has guided the Warriors to an unprecedented seven consecutive postseason appearances, including the 2014 NCAA West Region Championship. Say that three times fast. The 2013 National Soccer Coaches Association of America, at the time NSCAA West Region Coach of the Year, and 2013 CCAA Coach of the Year, has been the head coach during two stints at Stanislaus State since 2001. Like most of the guests that come on this show, Gabe and I have been fortunate enough to get connected via social media. I like how he approaches the game. I like his philosophy on the game. And I think he has a really interesting background. Uh, He also has a degree in law, 
that he picked up along the way of this crazy footballing soccer journey that he's been on. I hope you enjoy episode 26 of season two, my conversation with Gabe Bolton. Uh, so Gabe Bolton, thank you for joining the latest episode of the, the on the touchline podcast. And, uh, I always start the podcast by asking, you know, coaches and, <clears throat> and guests, uh, their backstory. And I, th- I think it's always fascinating, uh, of how people have gotten to where they are, uh, you know, in their coaching journey. So, um, take me through, uh, how you got to, uh, where you are, uh, in your current role. Well, uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. This is my first uh, podcast ever, so Woo-hoo. hopefully, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hopefully not my last one ever. Uh, I, so, gosh, I hope so too. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I've, um, you know, I kind of uh, taken the my journey's kind of for coaching at least has been uh, just baby steps, really. Um, you know, I started coaching in nineteen ninety three in davis california which is kind of a hotbed for soccer in northern california but i started as an ayso recreational coach for under 10 girls uh my next door neighbor came over and she had volunteered to coach a team and asked if i wanted to help out and i said i'd love to and and i kind of caught the coaching bug um after after that and i was in my junior year at uc davis and um, just loved coaching and, and I've loved the game my whole life. I, uh, my parents say I kicked my first soccer ball when I was two years old and we were living in Peru and, uh, we lived, my dad was an anthropologist. So we traveled a lot when I was growing up, we lived in Norway for a few years. We lived in Italy. We spent a year just driving all through Europe. And, and so we did a lot of traveling when I was younger because my father would be a guest professor uh, or guest lecturer at different universities. Um, and so soccer's always been a huge part of my life. And so coaching uh, kind of started there. And from there, I, uh, you know, contacted the local competitive club, a club called Davis Legacy, and uh, got to coach in their club and and then went to uh, San Juan Soccer Club in Sacramento and started coaching there, became the DOC for the girls' side there. Uh, while I was going to law school, I, I was still kind of on track to uh, become a lawyer. And then uh, got a coaching, head coaching job when I was 23 at Bella Vista High School in Sacramento, coached there for a few years, started the women's program at Sierra Junior College, and then came to Cal State Stanislaus, where I am now. I coached here for a year. It was a a part-time position with full-time duties as the head coach, coaching um, the women's team. And I I made $15,000 that year, and I had to sleep in my office uh, and because I couldn't really afford rent. So, and my, uh, I was living in Sacramento and I couldn't commute every day because it was about an hour and a half and we'd get back late from games. So I slept in my office, showered in the locker room. I think the statute of limitations is run on this so I can say it now uh, because, and I won't get in trouble with the administration. 
uh, and then took a job at the University of Utah as an assistant coach. I'd never been an assistant coach before. A colleague of mine, Rich Manning, had just won the national championship as the associate head coach of Santa Clara. He got the job at University of Utah as the head coach. And we had coached in ODP programs together, and he asked me to come there. And so I spent three years there uh, before coming back to Northern California and coming back to Cal State Stanislaus. And by then, the pay didn't require me to sleep in my office anymore. And so it was a lot more attractive. And that's where I am uh, today. Very cool, man. Um, I, so the, the, the part about traveling the world is really interesting to me. And uh, the fact that you got to experience cultures and um, how different parts of the world uh, view the game of football and engage with the game of football. And I'm curious for you what that was like uh, as, a, as a young person at the time. And, uh, you know, whether that be South America, whether that be, you know, a place like Norway or Europe, um, just, you know, maybe compare and contrast of, of what that was like and maybe styles or just the exposure you had to uh, the game itself. Yeah, I mean, I don't I, I'm not going to uh, pretend like I remember a lot of my time in Peru when I was two years old. So uh, but I, I'm sure that, uh, you know, my my mom and my dad uh, love soccer. And and so uh, that was a big part of it. And living in other countries where that's the. Um, you know, primary, if not only sport that anybody cares about uh, was, uh, has been a big influence. I remember, you know, living in, when I lived in Norway, uh, a bunch of my friends played for Rosenborg, which is a club in Trondheim, and they've been in the um, Champions League before, and they're a pretty, uh, pretty well-known club. And I remember going to their training sessions, going into their locker room where they changed for their age group. I played school ball there uh, as well. I remember playing in the freezing cold and on a gravel uh, field uh, in the, you know, in the winter months. And, and, you know, the, the, you know, I think what you kind of take away is the passion for the game. My dad used to, um, he's a cultural anthropologist. He used to bet on the Norwegian first division games and gamble. And he had a system that was based on the colors of the uniforms. And I remember doing that with him and watching every, uh, every game that would come in. It's his, his theory was more aggressive colors uh, win, uh, win games. So he would always bet on the team if they were wearing red, for example. Uh, so he had all these uh, gambling theories, probably not healthy for me to learn at the time, but it, it definitely uh, caught, you know, uh, grabbed my attention and, and then also in Norway, really, at the time, uh, it, there was there's not much television in uh, in Norway, and at that time, one of the only things you could watch was uh, like Liverpool uh, games on TV, and this is in the '80s, and 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 you know when we played every, it seemed like all my friends had a you know a foosball table in every single one of their. Uh, homes and everybody fought over who who was Liverpool and uh, you know it was all a lot of games between Liverpool Liverpool and Rosenborg um, which seems like a odd matchup now but back then it made a lot of sense so it definitely had a lot of um, you know it's had a lot of influence in my life from a soccer standpoint but also just from uh, the standpoint of um, you know understanding or uh, having a broader perspective on how different cultures. Um, operate and having a 
genuine respect and love for travel and those kinds of things. I think that's uh, just incredible and, and fantastic and um, can only imagine, you know, just growing up in that environment that, uh, you know, just what a, a culturally enriching uh, experience. And it, it sounds like your, your parents are uh, incredibly interesting people. Um, I'm sure that uh, in my college days, I would have loved to have taken a class from your dad or, or something along those lines. Yeah, um, he, has, he has the... Uh... He had the yeah, Pomona. He taught at Pomona College in Southern California, and his uh, it's a very very small school, and uh, they rarely have a class that's over maybe twenty. And his class had one hundred and forty people oh, wow. uh, in it. So it was a uh, um, yeah. It's definitely you. You definitely should have had them on the podcast instead of me. They're way more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so th there's something in your backstory that I find. Um, really interesting because I, I feel like this is where I'm at in my life. And, um, you know, it, it, it has been within the last five years, um, you know, of, of coaching, uh, mostly the, the youth game that, uh, this absolute love and incredible passion for the game of, of football and soccer has emerged in my life. And, you know, you had mentioned earlier that, uh, you were in law school and, you know, uh, went to law school and that, um, you know, I, the older I get, the more I realize someone had told me, I don't know if I was an undergrad or grad school or something like that, that, you know, a person's going to have, I don't know, five to seven careers, uh, in their lifetime, you know, or something along those lines. And, um, you know, I'm at the place in my life now where I feel myself sort of you know, making that pivot because my ultimate goal is to, to work in, in the game of football and soccer, you know, full time. And I'm wondering for you, if when you were in law school, that if you knew or kind of had this idea of like, well, you know, I'll go to law school and yeah, that's sort of maybe a little bit safer route, but my ultimate goal is to, is to be a soccer coach and to be a football coach. Yeah. I mean, I, I loved law school. I think the I, a lot of people don't enjoy the experience and just go through it because that's the career they want to go to, into. But I loved it. I think it teaches you how to think. It teaches you how to analyze situations, how to advocate for positions. I I really loved law school. Um, I I knew about two years into law school that I probably, that I really wanted to coach, that, that that's what I wanted to do. And I had a wonderful friend of mine, uh, Jeannie Shelby, who worked at UC Davis and she was kind of head of the career services uh, center there. And, and I had coached her daughter and I was saying, you know, I just, I'm just so torn. And she says, well, you know, why don't, why don't you meet with one of our you know, career counselors. And she says, I don't want to, you know, I, I would do it, but we know each other too well, so it won't be as productive. So I went and met with this career counselor and I wish I knew her name and I wish I could write her now and thank her. But, you know, we sat in this room and she says, okay, what's your dream job? And I said, uh, to be a college soccer head coach. And, you know, at the time I was coaching high school and she said, all right, well, let's just do that. You know, and, and it's like, lady, I don't think it's that easy, but, <laughs> uh, but she just had such a enthusiasm for it. And, and, um, 
you know, what, you know, what are the next steps? And I, you know, and we kind of talked about it a little bit. And at the time I happened to be at the high school I was coaching at, I was also student teaching because I kind of, you know, um, felt like, uh, and this is a little bit just kind of just after law school. And I kind of knew I didn't want to go into the legal profession necessarily. Teaching seemed like a way to go where I could, you know, teach and then be the head coach at the high school and maybe coach club. And, and so I was starting to do that. And, and I walk into the, my AD's office, Christy Wheeler's office one day, and she's on the phone and I'm overhearing and she's giving a recommendation for a coach and she gets off the phone. And I said, Hey, what was that? What was that for? And she says, Oh, you know, Sierra college is starting a new women's program. And they, you know, one of the applicants put me down as a reference. And then she looked and she said, you should really apply for that. And so I walked out the door. I called Sierra College. The uh, application process was closing the next day. I got in my application and I got that job and I started the program there. And, and again, you know, I think it's, it's I'm always interested uh, when people tell me they want to get into college coaching or they, they want to make coaching a career, especially at the college level. And then you kind of tell them, well, this is how I went about doing it, or this is kind of what you have to do. And when they find out they have to take jobs that don't pay any money and or volunteer or pay $5,000 a year, or all of a sudden they're not that interested in being college coaches anymore, you know? And, you know, there are, there are people that have phenomenal playing resumes and they can rely on that. And then they get, you know, they get a, uh, an assistant job at their big time college right after they're done playing and they go that route. And that's, you know, that's fantastic. Um, but that's a, probably a fairly small percentage. And, and I mean, just look at, you know, Nick nurse and winning the, uh, you know, championship with the Raptors and every job that, that he's had uh, along the way, I think, you know, I think you have to be willing to do what it takes to get to where you want to go. And depending on where you are in your life, you know, when you're, 28 and you're doing that which is what i was doing um it's uh, probably easier than if you're 45 and have you know three kids you know so uh because all of a sudden not bringing home a paycheck really isn't an option so i but i think it can you know i think it can happen i just think you have to be willing to do kind of what it takes to to get it done when you were uh I guess taking over a program or, or starting a program. Um, take me through what that was like, and um, you know the the challenges, the the positive moments. Um, what was that like for you as a as a coach at the time? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, at least for me. Uh, but I've um, I've heard other pretty well established coaches say this as well. Um, you have no idea what you're doing. Like you're, you know, you're making it up as you go. I think, uh, you know, I, I didn't, um, you know, I had never run a college program, obviously it was a junior college. Uh, I didn't know the landscape. We're starting, we're starting from scratch. So almost nobody knew the landscape where I was working. I had some wonderful, I've always had wonderful mentors, athletic directors who have helped me along the way. And so you kind of rely on, you rely on people. I think you have to um, be willing to know what you don't know 
and um, ask questions and ask others and and let people help you and let people guide you and and then slowly but surely you kind of start uh, you know getting a feel um, for it but I you know I'm a you know I know that kind of the um, that ten thousand hour uh, rule has you know in some ways been uh, debunked as far as skill acquisition but I will say that I think for me at least until I was seven to ten years into it I didn't I didn't know what I was doing you know and we were successful but I think it takes I think for coaches and I always think it's funny when you know nowadays you know coaches get sacked after a season or you know and new coaches uh, you know we see it in every level of sport I personally I think it takes a long time to figure it out and I think you need to be in an environment where you and I've also always been in an environment where I can make mistakes and um, I'm not afraid um, you know to make mistakes and people are supportive so I think um, I think it takes a long I think it takes a long time and when you're starting out I think it's you don't know what you're doing and I think that's okay I think you have to be okay with it I had a guest on uh, back in season one um, who said something very similar to, to what you said there, Gabe. And I love that because um, it is the the repetition of anything, right? It could be repetition in training. Um, you know, it, as coaches, we need reps. We can't, we can read no every question. book. Yeah. Uh, we can go to every coaching course. We can watch YouTube videos. We can watch as many matches under the sun, but um, you know, is, uh, is Gary Vaynerchuk or Gary V always talks about, you know, he's like, if you want to become a better weightlifter, you have to go lift weights. You know, you can't just read about weightlifting in a book and go, well, yeah, I'm going to be a great weightlifter. Right. It's the same thing in, in, you know, in terms of coaching that, um, I agree with you. It is a, it is a true process. And I think for me, I was telling someone recently that, um, you know, I, it's like, I want to go back and shake, uh, the coach I was five years ago and go, and go, like, God, what were you thinking? <laughs> you know, right. and like, and, and it, and that comes from inexperience that comes from lack of ideas that comes from, you know, lack of exposure to different ways of looking at the game or whatever, uh, still have a tremendously long way to go in my opinion for myself. But the fact, uh, exactly what you said of the repetition, the grind, the messing up the, the failure of it, um, I think is, is really great advice to, you know, anyone uh, in this profession, just because, you know, uh, for, for Jurgen Klopp to be Jurgen Klopp or, um, you know, any manager in the World Cup right now or, you know, anything like that, like, they probably screwed up somewhere along the way. They probably screw up on a daily basis. I mean, people were roasting Joe Ellis for, um, you know, how she handled uh, the U.S. women's team match earlier this week. And, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. I'm like, she has a world cup to her name, like everybody back off a little bit here, you know? Um, but you know, I guess that's what we do. And I agree with what you said. Um, you know, it, it feels like it happens every year at Everton, by the way, that, uh, right. you know, that they're, uh, they're changing managers. So, um, well, and I think, she, I think Jill also is a great example because I think she's a way better coach today than she was in 2015. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know her story at all. And I don't know her at all, but, I feel like there's been a definitely a big progression uh, in her as a coach. And yet in the last game, I think she was dreadful. 
you know, I, yeah. I, and, and, and the problem is for us as coaches, I think is, and that's one of the reasons I'm really impressed with her is I think you could, you can win the world cup and that's the ultimate in success and success tends to mask, you know, any deficiencies that you have. And, and yet she's developed and improved um, as a coach over the course of the last four years. And my suspicion is that she's probably a lifelong learner. And I think all of us as coaches, if we're going to be successful, we have to be lifelong learners because the game changes, but more importantly, what we're seeing now, I think is that people change and the athletes are changing and um, you know, how you motivate athletes today is I think is way different than what you could, you know, what motivated them five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So I, I'm really, you know, it's, it's interesting because on the one hand, I'm really impressed. I think she's improved. I think the style of the national team has improved a lot. Um, the quality of the players has improved and she's, you know, she has grown with it. But then in the last game, I'm like, Oh man, that was a disaster. You know, as far as I think she froze, I think she didn't want to make it. She didn't know if she should make a sub or not. And the time just ticked on and ticked on. And, and, um, but I think it was, you know, it was probably mismanaged, but then again, they won. So, uh, you know, it's, um, uh, it's harder to criticize when that happens. Right. Right. No, I, I would agree. Uh, yeah, the, the, the clock was ticking and, uh, everybody was, uh, myself included, uh, tweeting <laughs> and, uh, or, you know, uh, willing her to, uh, to get some subs on there, uh, sooner than later. So I, I've had a few guests on, um, you know, previously Gabe that had talked about, uh, something you just mentioned about people. And, you know, knowing that today's athlete at times feels like a little bit of a moving target, right? That um, sometimes that human interaction or, um, you know, engagement with people uh, in a, you know, one-on-one -on -one setting or a team setting, it does look a little different than, say, 10, 15 years ago. And I'm curious, maybe the, the evolution you've experienced as a coach of, you know, what the modern day... Uh, collegiate athlete uh, might look like and how do you, you know, how do you have that positive impact on them that you're, you're, you know, seeking? Yeah, uh, it has changed. Um, it has changed a lot. And, you know, I think all of us as coaches have had to adapt. I think uh, the, the modern athlete at the collegiate level needs to know why they're doing what they're doing. I think the command approach of just do this um, doesn't work anymore. And I think they have to have a clear understanding of what they're doing and why they're doing it. I also think that as learners, they're changing a lot and, and, um, and you have to kind of meet them uh, where they are. And so um, you know, the use of the use of video, um, doing things that are more visual in nature, whether it's presenting things in a, you know, in a keynote presentation or uh, with animated graphics or uh, with video clips. And then uh, obviously uh, doing things in a kinesthetic way where they, they learn by doing all those things are way, um, way more important. Um, they don't have the, um, 
attention span anymore to listen to you lecture them or tell them what they should be doing. It was interesting. A couple of years ago, I was at um, Vitesse in Holland and, and um, meeting um, with their uh, video analysis uh, coach. And he said that the uh, video, the scouting report video uh, lasts three minutes for the player. Uh, that that's the and the total meeting itself lasts 10 minutes, including three minutes of video. And he says, I think he said something like it took 10 hours of work to create three minutes of video because they scout um, they scout three games. Um, and one of them has to be uh, if they're playing, for example, if uh, the test is the home team, then one of the three games ha- from the opponent has to be an away game so they can see how the team plays on the road versus playing at home. So they scout the three most recent games, including either an away game or a home game, depending on what uh, the competition is going to be. And so you scout those three games, you break it all the video down. He says it takes 10 hours to boil it down to three minutes and that's all the players can, uh, can handle. And that was, that was, you know, eye opening because, you know, you sit in there and go, okay, I'm going to, I got, you know, 67 clips here that I'm going to show the team. And, and yeah, I spent 10 hours and I'm going to show them at least nine hours of that work. Um, and you realize, well, nobody has the attention span for that. And they all fell asleep and nobody retained anything. And, and um, to hear a pro coach tell you that uh, that's how they have to do it for their professional athletes. And we're not dealing with, we're dealing with, you know, not professional amateur part-time athletes. Um, you know, it really, it, things have really, you know, changed. And so, and you have to meet them where they are. I, I, they, you cannot expect them to come to where, to where you are. I would, uh, wholeheartedly agree that, um, you know, the, uh, the great equalizer, I think in our society, um, is technology and that with a generation of players that have grown up and, um, you know, fully experienced, uh, all the uh, the good, the bad, the ugly when it comes to technology that um, absolutely they're they're not going to necessarily seek us out and that uh, our job as coaches is to, I think, fully understand the, the temperature of the room. So I, I guess maybe that's a, a good lead in into um, kind of a, a two part question of tell me about your philosophy on the game and, you know, what style of play um, you know, do you want your teams to play or what, what do you want it to look like uh, when you're out on the pitch? Yeah, well, here um, we have a really simple model of play here at, at uh, Stan State, and that's to dominate the ball. And we break that down into three parts, and the three parts are to uh, keep the ball when we have it, get it back when we don't, and score goals. So uh, we're not – I'm not a good enough coach to be very complicated and uh, I need things to be, you know, fairly simple. And that's what we're uh, looking for. We have our, we have a vision of play that we call ballers balling. Um, Like let's, you know, playing with confidence, loving the ball, wanting to keep the ball, wanting to score as many goals as possible. Um, and, and so those, that's, you know, that's what we're looking for. Those are the types of players we're looking for. I, I try and, um, everything we do, I try from a soccer standpoint, I try and do, um, 
in a way that is consistent with our model of play and our vision of play. Um, and I mean everything. Like even at camp, we don't give away T-shirts. We give away soccer balls. Okay, because I that's I want all the campers that come to camp to fall in love with the soccer ball. Um, so I that's our. Um, and if I you know occasionally we get distracted, right? And and we start doing things that don't really fit our model of play, and then I have to stop and reevaluate it and go, nope, not going to do that, you know. Um, and uh, I think that for me, especially since we're in an environment here where there's one head coach and one assistant coach, uh, and that's it, you know. I mean, that we're running a, the whole program. Um, I think you have to stay really focused on who you are um, and from there don't get distracted by um, by all the you know the bells and whistles or the shiny new thing if it doesn't match with who you are and how you want to play and um, your vision for the game I feel like we're uh, separated at birth game because uh, <laughs> I you know and it's funny um, I've had uh, I was talking with an athletic director at the high school level re recently and um, similar type of conversation. And he said to me, he goes, man, he goes, that sounds a, like a really simplistic view on the game. And my response back to him was, it doesn't have to be complicated. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I would actually prefer simplicity. Um I had heard uh, Anson Dorrance uh, from North Carolina speak, I don't know, it was probably this time a year ago. And actually one of the notes I remember from the conversation, I tend to write notes down all the time. My wife thinks I'm crazy. But uh, <laughs> uh, I, I actually wrote down, I'm looking at it right now, um, it says love the ball. And that's something that you had mentioned. And the uh, way you're describing sort of philosophy or kind of what it looks like on the pitch it actually reminds me a lot of kind of how he views the game, right? That, um, you know, uh, that, you know, uh, obviously loving the ball is a significant piece of that, but, um, you know, we want to keep it. Uh, if we lose it, we want to get it back and we want to score goals. And um, I think players understand that. And I think that, you know, then it's the repetition of repeating that. And, you know, I'm guilty of it as, as any coach that, um, you know, sometimes you want to tinker with sort of the, you know, grandma's secret, like uh, spaghetti sauce or something. And you go like, <laughs> there's a reason why it's sort of tried and true, you know, and sort of right. ba battle tested. Like, I don't need to jazz it up a little bit. Um, there's a reason why grandma got it right, you know. So um, so it, tell me about failure. Um, we tend to talk about that quite a bit on this podcast. And I'm I'm wondering, you know, those moments in your career where you go, God, I got it. Maybe I got that wrong. Or, um, you know, you, you, maybe you, you feel like you, you failed at something. Um, and it could be in your coaching journey or, you know, day-to-day -day practice or, you know, a, a game management situation, like we were talking about, you know, Joe Ellis or, or something like that. I'm wondering if there's sort of a moment or uh, maybe a moment or two that, um, you know, uh, sort of resonates or sort of stands out to you that you remember. Yeah, I mean, well, it's, it's a, it happens on a daily basis, so it's gonna have it's gonna be hard to narrow it down to a um, to a, a moment uh, or two. Um, I think for me, the um, uh, 
biggest moments of um, of failure have been with um, interact probably interactions with uh, student athlete that I then kind of later regret as far as um, feeling like I didn't support them the way I failed them as a coach, you know, um, and uh, didn't support them to the way they needed to be, you know, supported. Um, and, um, you know, a few, a uh, few years ago, I started working with um, a, um, like a sports psychologist to help me with my, with my coaching and to learn, um, you know, kind of why, um, why I do what I do, how to be intentional about what I do, how to be intentional about what I say. Um, I'm a very, you know, I'm on the field, I'm a high energy guy. I, you know, want the players to compete hard. Um, and, and, you know, how do you drive that competition without you being the person that's driving it? You know, um, uh, I think sometimes the head coach has to, um, drag the team across the finish line, you know, will them to success, you know, it's just not going, uh, well, but I think that's also, um, I think if you're doing that, you've probably failed in other ways of developing leaders on the team to do that, um, of establishing the relationships um, with the players so they can do that, of building an environment where they feel safe and they can do it. And and those are all things that I've on a regular basis kind of, um, because I think the way you coach athletes have, uh, has changed over the last probably five or six years. Um, that I've had to adapt um, and change, you know? Um, and it's so funny because the, the players that played for me, um, you know, eight, nine years ago are like, who are you? Like, you know, um, what happened to the guy that's like on the line at 6 a.m., you know, let's go, that wasn't good enough, you know, kind of thing. I'm like, well, I mean, there's a little bit of that. You still, you know, uh, but... <laughs> You know, there's not as much of that, you know, so because you have to, you know, you have to change and you have to adapt and those those approaches don't work. And and so I think for me, those have been my biggest moments of failure. And I don't it, it's so funny. I don't really remember many moments of failure that I really super regret on the field, you know, um, but there are plenty of moments um, in um trying to guide our student athletes that I feel like, uh, I didn't do a good job there. I got to do a better job, but, you know, um, and, uh, so that's kind of, I think for me been the most important part of my growth because ultimately I, I hope that I'm as a, as their coach, I'm somebody that is, uh, has a positive influence, um, in their life and helps them, uh, develop into the person that they, you know, want to be. I've asked coaches, uh, other guests that have uh, been on the show, and I'm always, I'm always really fascinated by the answer they give um, to the question of culture. And um, you know, some some programs have um, some really deep uh, resources and can actually dedicate 
people or a person um, to, to being very intentional and just driving, you know, a positive program culture. Uh, had talked with a, a coach recently who uh, he was hired, you know, this time uh, last year, and he had been um, on a little bit of a sabbatical um, from his previous coaching um, position. And when I asked him the question about culture, I was I was actually surprised, and it was a little refreshing to hear that he goes, "You know what?" He goes, "I haven't spent much time uh, with that piece of my program." Uh, in the first year, he goes, I literally met my players, you know, when they showed up for camp, he goes, I had no idea even what I had. Um, and it's taken me a full year to sort of learn, you know, kind of what I have as a, as a program and kind of what I need and then, you know, kind of mold it from there. So, um, is it, do, do players drive the culture? Do coaches drive the culture? Is it a combination of both? Um, and what does that look like for your program? Yeah, I don't. I don't think I have a very um, mainstream or popular view on uh, on culture, because I think that most of what we see uh, is when we, you know, when we see people talking about uh, culture on Twitter or on social media or on TV. I think. You know, I, I, we're allowed to swear on this show. I don't know what podcast rules are, yeah. but I think it's I think it's bullshit. You know, <laughs> like you know, it, you go, you, you know, the San Antonio Spurs have a culture. Okay, the second Greg Popovich leaves the San Antonio Spurs, the culture is going to be totally different. It's not the Spurs culture, right? It's the culture of the people that are there in the moment. Okay, so I think. Cultures are always changing, right? Because the people are changing. And I also think that culture isn't, a, isn't attached to an organization, right? Uh, what, ha you know, if culture was attached to an organization, why are the Lakers such a mess? You know, I mean, I remember the Lakers in the 80s, right? I remember Pat Riley, Showtime, right? Well, that was their culture back then. Well, then why is it gone now? right? Because the people are different, right? So I think we make two mistakes. I think we make the mistake of thinking that culture is attached to a program uh, or an entity, all right? And I think the other mistake we make is pointing to that culture when we're in that program as, well, we have to be like that. And our expectation is that because I, it's not, I don't think that's based in you know, reality, you know, so, you know, for me, I think culture is absolutely, it's, I don't know, you know, it's driven by the people that are in the organization. And as the people change, the culture can, you know, can adapt, the culture changes, the culture, um, and sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse, right? Um, but I think it's a, um, it's like this, you know, unicorn that we're all searching for of, you know, the culture, the culture, the culture, you know, what, I don't know what, I don't, doesn't, does, did Manchester United lose all their culture? You know, what, ha what happened? You know, they brought back in Solskjaer, right? He was part of that culture. Why is it not working? Culture, culture. It's not working because the players are different, you know, um, their mindset is different, you know, so, and you can't, I, you, 
you cannot force players to um, act a certain way or behave a certain way if that's not what they want to do. Um, I was um, a part of a kind of a pilot course uh, with uh, What Drives Winning. And, um, you know, one of the, I think it was uh, Brett that said, um, he loves it when he sees uh, a sign on the locker room door that says, um, leave your ego at the door, you know, kind of thing before you enter this locker room. And he said, he said, should I leave my honesty out here too? You know, like what other things do you want me to leave out here that aren't, you know, aren't reality. Right. Um, so I think the, um, the, the, the more important thing rather than thinking about, Oh, this, you know, our team culture, our 17 core values are, you know, um, you know, we have a, we've had, we have like five core values in our program and, you know, uh, one of them is, you know, and they've come from different people in the program, but one of them is, you know, play for each other. But you know what, the rea- I understand that core value and I love it. And I think it's something we should all strive for. But I also know that the like freshman sitting in the corner who's not getting any playing time has no, is not in any way identifying with the let's play for each other. Heck, I'd like to play for myself for five minutes. You know, like that's what she's probably thinking about it. So I think that what you, um, when we kind of focus on these things, um, these grand, you know, pronouncements and, uh, values that we all should have, we forget that the sport, um, the team is made up of individual people and they all bring certain baggage to the organization, right? And if you, um, if your way of dealing with um, them is to say, hey, you know, give a hundred percent one of our core values. Let's go. Give a hundred percent. Okay. If that's your approach, rather than sitting down with the player and saying, Okay, look, I noticed that your effort isn't effort really isn't where it needs to be. Okay, or your commitment isn't where it needs to be. How do we get let's work together, let's get you there. Okay. Um, I think that's a um, much more effective approach and sure you can still have that core value um and you can say whatever you want to say about what your culture is um but at the end of the day it's you know it's the players it's the people that um really drive that and your culture is going to be what we see it is if i didn't know better i would uh would say you're the son of a cultural anthropologist yes I am. <laughs> <laughs> that was uh that was a fantastic answer, uh, Gabe. Um, and I, I love, actually, I, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a road less traveled guy. So I, I love the non mainstream view of that. Um, and you know, a, a lot of these, the questions that I ask guests on the show, um, it, it's much like our game. There's a whole lot of gray and right. that, uh, you know, I, I think that it's probably going to resonate with a, a few of the folks in the listening audience and certainly resonated with me. Um, there's something that I wrote down. I'm looking at my notes. If you see me kind of glancing off to the side here, what I wrote down kind of prepping for today. And um, I think it was from your website. I could be wrong. So if I get this wrong, just tell me. Uh, but the purpose of coaching is to develop people. Uh, 
And I'm wondering, I guess, where that was formed uh, for you. Yeah, that was um, <laughs> that was formed from me not enjoying what I was doing anymore. Like me um, struggling um, with uh, we were, you know, we were being, we were successful, we were doing well. Um, but in many ways, I just, you know, I wasn't in, you know, enjoying it. And like, I was kind of feeling like if, you know, if this is all there is, I don't know that um, I enjoy it that much. You know, I, you know, I love the competition and, you know, I love my job and I love all aspects of it. But what am I doing here? You know, why why isn't this as fun as it should be? This is the dream job, you know, kind of thing. And and so I I, I had to evaluate. Okay, what you know, what is it that I'm trying, uh, you know, to accomplish? And I, um, you know, I was um, like I said, I kind of took this, you know, pilot course and. Um, few years ago and what what drives winning and 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 this is what a lot of the course was about like a lot of really successful coaches <laughs> feeling the far more successful and well-known than i am um you know having the same you know kind of thoughts you know and the same kind of uh feelings and you know i was you know i struggle with health issues and um one of my uh twins was uh sick at the time and and just you know in general you know yeah we're winning yeah we're making the postseason you know we're we still have a long ways to go we haven't won a national championship we haven't done that so uh, i should still be motivated by you know by that aspect of it but feeling like this isn't that it's not as rewarding as i want it to be um and so uh that's kind of um how that you know, how that developed and kind of finding my purpose um, as a coach. Cause I think when you're younger, what you think, you know, what you think coaching is about um, isn't really, you know, what it's about. I would 100% uh, agree with, uh, with what you said there. And that, um, you know, sometimes when you, at least in my own life, you know, when you feel like you've made it to the top of the mountain, uh, there, at least for me, there, there was always that level of, you know, a certain level of disappointment, um, and that it's like, I've reached it now what? And, um, you know, in, in the same, I, I very much appreciate what you said about, uh, working with a sports psychologist. Um, you know, I've worked with a, a mental health person, um, you know, in my own life, just to kind of help sort out exactly what you said, that purpose piece and that, you know, I, man, uh, to think where I was, you know, three years ago to where I'm at now, I mean, I feel like I'm a different person. And, um, you know, sometimes, you know, we all need the help of, of someone else to, you know, kind no of turn, question. you know, turn yeah. our sh ship around, so to speak. Um, especially if you get going in a, in a direction that you don't like, you know, so, um, so a, a question that I end most podcasts with is the, uh, it's a very loaded question, so I'll, I'll preface that. Uh, if you were, um, well, let, let me ask it this way: If so, tell me what we're doing right and uh, and what we're doing wrong when it comes to soccer. 
uh, here in the U.S. Oh. <laughs> um, I, you know, I don't, I, I don't feel like I'm like that qualified to answer that question, but I can, I can talk about it from the standpoint of my little neck, you know, of the woods, right? Um, I think uh, in in Northern California, maybe this is, well, I think Northern California is really special in, in this regard that the, um, our, uh, most of our, um, uh, clubs are part of, um, uh, NorCal Premier and the organization is run by amazing soccer people. And, and they are invested in developing the game and the coaching education that they provide at almost no cost okay, is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, they have a seminar, they have a three day seminar coming up this week and you can kind of look online and see who the people are that are going to be presenting. And it's just, it's, you know, it's phenomenal people from all over the world. Um, that are going to come and share a wealth of knowledge with, with the coaches here. And it, it doesn't cost anything, you know? Um, and so I think here, one of the things we're doing really right in this part um, of the country is coaching education. Um, I would like to go get my A license. And I went through all the NSEA um, United Soccer Coaches, all the way up to the whatever the last one is, the Premier or something like that. Um, and I'd like to go back and get my A license, and I have my B. Um, and I don't. I feel like I'm, you know, I live a comfortable life. Uh, but it's four thousand dollars, and that doesn't mm -hmm. include the travel, you know. And I love what U.S. Soccer has done from the standpoint of. Um, how you get your license now. Cause I remember going to get my B license and you just, you were there for a week and you learned as much as you could and you either passed or you failed. And that was the end of it. Right. And, and the approach now is a lot more thoughtful. I think it's the right approach. Um, but I think that clearly one of the things we're doing wrong in this country is we are um, not educating our coaches enough and we are keeping people out of coaching education uh, be, for financial reasons. It's a, it's a massive barrier. Um, I will have to talk my wife into $4,000 um, for my, you know, a license. Uh, and um, that is not an easy conversation because $4,000 we can do. I don't really need it for my job. I just want to do it to continue to develop and improve. Um, and that's going to be the conversation, you know, we have and why it has to cost, you know, $4,000 when you're an organization that's sitting on, you know, a hundred million dollars in reserves and, and, uh, making money, you know, on a daily basis. I have no idea. So for me, that's clearly, it's something we're doing right here in Northern California. Um, I, uh, the uh, education you're going to get at a three-day uh, NorCal Premier course um, is pretty substantial. Uh, and what we're doing wrong, I think, is that we're not educating uh, coaches. 
and we're uh, putting a financial barrier in front of it that is, you know, it's crazy. You know? um, the other thing for me is I, I coach, I'm the director of coaching for a club, Academica, um, and we have a first team that plays in, we have the full pyramid of soccer in our club, which is, you know, pretty rare around here um, from, you know, four-year-old rec soccer, futsal, you know, everything up to an MPSL first team, okay? Um, we have no ability to go anywhere. If we want to be USL3, it costs about $5 million, right? Um, and if we want to be, I mean, we don't have anywhere near the money to be USL. Right? We don't have the money to be USL3. So we're stuck. We're stuck. And um, we are, it, we're stuck in a way that also keeps us from benefiting from developing some phenomenal players. Our, our players are going for our, from our club and playing in the Earthquakes Academy, the, uh, you know, Republic FC Academy in Sacramento. Uh, and obviously we, we don't get compensated in any way for all the work that we put in um, to those players. And so we're in an environment, we're in a pay for play environment like everybody else, but we have a first team and we could be doing so much more, but you have the barrier that the financial barrier, once again, that U.S. soccer has kind of arbitra arbitrarily placed in front of everybody. Uh, that makes it impossible for us um, to go somewhere. And we could go somewhere. Like we could be a uh, USL, a third division uh, club in our environment and do very well. And, um, and we could have players that go on and play, um, you know, in MLS and then maybe in Europe because uh, we can, in the Central Valley here, especially on the boys' side, the amount of talent is, um, it's phenomenal, you know, um, but we're stuck, you know, we're stuck. And, and so that's, um, it's discouraging as a, as a director of coaching on the youth side that we're, you know, probably we're never going to go anywhere. We're never going to be able to grow. I love that answer, uh, Gabe. And I feel like, um, you know, if you were to describe, um, sort of the, the state of U.S. soccer, um, and that's all, all leagues, um, you know, USL, NPSL, MLS, that, um, that, that phrase that you just mentioned, we're stuck. Yeah. I mean, that, you nailed it. And, uh, <coughs> uh, you know, uh, having uh, some ties to a local NPSL club here in the Pittsburgh area, I, I, I feel the same way. And that, that's part of what drew me to the club was sort of this um, – you know, we call it sort of cradle to grave uh, type of experience that they can offer players. But how great would it be that if you're in a promotion battle, um, you know, to move up or in a relegation battle, um, you know, to, to stay relevant? Um, you know, I, I think we need it. I feel really strongly about that uh, here in the States. And, you know, <laughs> I know people are, are going to say, well, this and that and financially and blah, 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 blah. No, it should be based on merit. And people should have the ability. And you're exactly right. I've I've talked with other people in uh, in in your neck of the woods. Like you said, the player pool, the talent pool, is rich. It is deep. You deserve a chance to prove it on the field. And um, yeah, you've uh, man. <laughs> like I said, I feel like we're uh, we're separated at birth here, my friend. <laughs> so um, 
we we could probably make this just a podcast by itself, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, if uh, if folks want to connect with you, Gabe, and kind of follow along in in what you're doing, and um, uh, you know, whether it be social media or your program, how can they do that? Oh, just go onto Twitter at Gabe Bolton, um, and you can you can find me there, and then you can. 10 minutes later you can block me if you want uh, so <laughs> you'll, de- you'll definitely get my opinion on twitter um yeah the, that's the uh that's the best way uh to connect with me and um I, I you know i love the platform that as much as there's frustration sometimes uh i love the platform that uh, it's amazing what we're able to do nowadays and and i just think it's you know i can you know i can ask Todd Bean a question or I can ask Tom Byer a question. And these guys are so, you know, uh, giving with their time and will answer. And, and um, I remember, you know, just a couple of days ago, I had, you know, I was uh, direct messaging with um, uh, Dan Abramson, you know, and, and about uh, sports psychology, which, you know, uh, I had some, <laughs> some thoughts on <laughs> and, uh and he's just so, you know, so gracious and giving with their time. And so I really like, I love what we're able to do nowadays because 10 years ago, we could never, you know, the only time you could see somebody like that is if you went to a seminar or you went somewhere where they were, you know, speaking and they don't, even at those events, they don't have time to, you know, have that conversation with every single person in there. So that's the best way to connect with me if anybody wants to. And, and um, yeah, I'm excited. Good deal, man. Well, uh, Gabe Bolton, thank you for, coming on the latest episode of the on the touchline podcast. And, uh, I think for your, your first podcast, man, you, you knocked it out of the park. So, uh, oh, thanks. very, very well done. Yeah. A special thank you to Gabe Bolton for coming on the latest episode of the on the touchline podcast. Gabe, I wish you and the women's team at Stanislaus State nothing but success uh, going forward and would love to have you back on the podcast sometime, maybe in season three or in another season, and we can do a deep dive on a topic of interest. So all the best to you. Before we go, I know I had promised a On the Touchline newsletter and was away for the 4th of July holiday here in the States. That will be coming out very, very soon. So look for that in your email boxes. If you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, go to the show notes of this particular episode, and it will take you to the website that houses all archived episodes of the On The Touchline podcast. On the homepage, just plug in your email address, and you're off and running. Then you will be subscribed to the On The Touchline newsletter like I said, that'll be coming out really, really soon. All right, guys, reach out on social media at Soccer Coach JB on Twitter and Instagram, and we'll have a new episode for you, episode 27 of season two, uh, coming out later this week. So look out for that. This has been the latest episode of the On the Touchline podcast. I'm your host, Jason Broadwater. 